Today's scripture can be found on page 8 in your bulletins. I will be reading Jeremiah 7, 1 through 19. But first, let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and for its message of comfort and affirmation, but also of warning and correction. Please help us to listen carefully to the words you spoke to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah and to the message you have impressed upon Pastor Jim through his study and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a, de become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites and the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, 
for I am not listening to you. Do not see what they are doing in the t- do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? The word of the Lord. The, the Godfather. Al Pacino plays the mobster Michael Corleone, who at this point in the movie uh, has just had his first son. He and his family are gathered in a Gothic cathedral for the baptism. The priest and the family are gathered around the, the baptismal font, and as the ceremony unfolds, uh, we begin to see other scenes spliced in. We see weapons being prepared, hitmen getting ready for a job men in suits going about their business. Meanwhile, the the baby is being prayed over. The the priest is speaking in Latin. Then the priest addresses Michael. Michael, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church? Michael gives his affirmation, then the priest asks, Michael, Francis, Rizzi, do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his pomps? And Michael replies, I do renounce him. I do renounce them. And just as he answers, we see the hitmen arriving to execute other mob bosses across New York. Michael's consolidating his power over the New York mob, and his rivals are violently executed one by one. But the final words of the scene are the priest's blessing. Michael Rizzi, go in peace, and may the Lord be with you. The juxtaposition here of the violence of the mobster and the Christian faith is is obvious. Whether we're believers or not, we find the contrast jarring. We all recognize that there's something wrong with giving lip service to these beliefs when they're just a cover for moral, moral corruption. The, the ritual of the church was just a mask for Michael Corleone's pursuit of power. The hypocrisy is obvious. This is what we're dealing with today, this theme of hypocrisy. As we continue in our series through the book of Jeremiah, In Jeremiah 7, we hear the prophet preaching outside the gate, leading into the temple as the people arrive for worship. He accuses them of being like Michael Corleone. They attend to the rituals of worship, but their lives are marked by oppression, immorality, violence, the worship of other gods. And Jeremiah's message was not popular. As a result of these words, Uh, We hear in chapter 26 that he is arrested, 
and he just barely escapes being put to death. So what can we learn from him about this today? Three things. Why hypocrisy matters. What hypocrisy really means. And third, how to deal with it. Why it matters, what it means, and, and how to deal with it. Let's look at each one of these. First, why, why it matters. Hypocrisy matters because, as our response to Michael Corleone shows, none of us can stand it when someone's actions don't line up with their professed beliefs. Jeremiah says that God shares this perspective, and this is why, in these verses, he demands change from the people. Look at verse 3 again. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Or verses 5 to 7. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Their way of life and their actions do not line up with their identity as the Lord's people. Two things about this. First, we have to remember that as we read Jeremiah, we're in the middle of a big story. This is not a new relationship between God and these people. We heard this in verse 7. Then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. The land was a gift. First promised to Abraham, then delivered to their ancestors after they were saved from slavery in in Egypt. This means that the foundation of the relationship between God and the people was all grace. They were a people who had received their place not because they or their ancestors were better than any other people, but only because God chose them. So second, consider what God was asking in response. In response, he called them to show grace to others. They were blessed to be a blessing to others. They're called to do justice with one another in community. He means for them to stand out from all other people in the world in the way that they love one another. They're supposed to deal with other races, other nations, the weak and the vulnerable differently, asking who are the most vulnerable among us, who needs to be protected, Uh, with specific reference in verse 6 to to not oppressing the foreigner living in their land, the, the fatherless or the widow, the most vulnerable of society. Oppression begins when we assume that the good things that we have are not a gift, but something that we deserve, something that we have earned, that we can do with what we please. If that's what we believe, then we won't be concerned about those who have less than we do because we assume that they just haven't worked hard enough, like us. But on the other hand, if you believe that everything you have is a gift, the family you were born into, the opportunities that you were given, the education or the inheritance that you received, then you'll be humble and patient and generous with those who face challenges that you've never had to face. Christians believe that everything that they have is a gift of grace through the person and work of Jesus. They're the people who've received not just a physical land, but a spiritual inheritance eternal life with God. 
There's, there's no place for legalism in this relationship. We don't earn our relationship with God, just as the Israelites didn't earn the Holy Land. But there's also no place for hypocrisy. If anything, the New Testament sets out an even higher expectations for the alignment of heart and life. Christians are collectively called the, the body of Christ because they're meant to be the presence of Jesus on earth in the places where they work, where they study, where they live. When, when people look at us, they're supposed to see Jesus. When they deal with us, they're supposed to experience the love, the compassion, the patience of Jesus. This is why hypocrisy matters so much. It's God's own reputation that is on the line. If that's the case, it's important to understand what hypocrisy really means. It can be obvious, but it can also be very subtle. Notice what Jeremiah says in verse 4 and also in verses 8 to 11. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And verse 8, look, you are trusting in deceptive words. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. The people were hypocrites not only because they were doing the wrong things, but because they were trusting in the wrong things. Do not trust in deceptive words, he says. They had a false sense of security as a result of their religious history. They assumed that because they had this great gift from God, they were safe from judgment. And, and what they sounded as they arrived for worship sounded very pious. This is the temple of the Lord. The problem was that they were more focused on the gift than the giver. Worship at the temple was just a way to signal their virtue. And when that happened, the temple became a den of robbers, a place to hide from God rather than to meet with God. In the ancient world, even those who were avoiding God wanted to be associated with him. Or, or if not the Lord, then with other gods. That's why they still attended the, the worship at the temple and observed its rituals. We see something similar in the Godfather, don't we? Even the murderous gangster wants his baby baptized in the church. We live in a much more secular world today. So it might seem that the issue of hypocrisy is only something that religious people have to worry about. But if you're here today and you don't consider yourself religious, let me ask you to consider whether there's an application here for you too. If hypocrisy is living out of line with your values because you're trusting in the wrong thing, then this really applies to everyone. The ancient world and, and the Italian Catholic world of Michael Corleone were, were cultures that valued piety. So you might not really believe, but you act religious just to meet the expectations of your family or society. The same kind of thing can happen even in a secular culture. For example, if you live in a very progressive culture that values giving to the poor and supporting good causes, 
then many will do it to be honored by others, not because they really care about those in need. So when you're going through the checkout line and the cashier asks you if you want to support the cause of the week to add on a few dollars to your bill, you do it. Not because you care about whatever Walgreens or the co-op or Target is raising money for, because you want to look like someone who cares. Or if you live in an honor and shame culture where being a strong warrior is a high value, then you might act like a tough, violent person, not because you really want to protect the weak, defend the defenseless, but because of the social capital it gains you. An image of strength means more respect from other people. Or if your culture values authenticity and freedom above all, then you might go to great lengths to discover your own uniqueness and, and express it through how you dress or through your taste in music and art. Because this is the way to get praise and recognition from others, not because you're really any different from anyone else. What I'm suggesting here is that hypocrisy is not just a religious problem. We all have to deal with it. Originally, this word, hypocrisy, it comes from the world of Greek theater. It referred to the masks that the Greek actors wore to represent different characters in the drama. This is a good picture of the problem. We all wear masks to, to justify ourselves. And the reason is not necessarily our lack of faith. It's actually that we believe that we need something more than what God offers to be okay. The movie Amadeus tells the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's life as told by Antonio Salieri, the contemporary composer who uh, was insanely jealous of Mozart's talent, claimed to have murdered him. There's a scene in the movie in which Salieri, as a boy, kneels before a crucifix and he tries to make a bargain with God. He says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. He offered God a deal. I sacrifice for you, and in return you give me what I want. He didn't trust God to give him what he needed. He trusted in reputation and fame. And this is why Salieri ends up a bitter old man, angry at God, angry at the world, angry at himself. He didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get what he believed he deserved. We're all a little like Salieri. We value what we can get from God more than God himself. And when we don't get it, we're angry and we're bitter. How do we deal with hypocrisy like this? Two things. First, it requires admitting that your beliefs and your actions are not in alignment. That you are a hypocrite. 
but, but it's not enough to just confess the ways that you're wrong. Secondly, you have to let the good news of the gospel capture your heart, that God's grace is for all of us, including hypocrites like you and me. Well, let me explain. Jeremiah's word of judgment in verses 12 to 19 is a cry for the people to deal with what is wrong. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, you've probably had the experience of being ghosted. This is where someone that you thought was a friend suddenly stops liking your posts or commenting or acting like you even exist. They're too uncomfortable to address what's going on in real life, and so they just ghost. In Jeremiah, we see that this is not God's approach. Uh, They don't just show up to the temple one day and he's gone. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. Just as he allowed the previous site of the tabernacle at Shiloh to be destroyed, he's going to allow the temple to be destroyed. He's going to ask his prophets to stop interceding for the people. He's going away because they've made it clear that they want whatever they can get from God, but not God himself. So they will give, he, he will give them what they want. Jeremiah's challenge here is for all of us. Some of you may have noticed that Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 when he came to the temple and he drove out the, the money changers. In Mark 11, he says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. those listening would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. That Jeremiah's critique still held. Jesus was declaring God's judgment over that place. He was warning them that God did not overlook their hypocrisy and their sin. And the same is still true of us today. As we look at our hearts and what really motivates our behavior, But as we do that, and as we confess what's really there, we also have to see that Jesus did something shocking. He declared judgment at the temple, and then he turned, and he went to the cross, and he took that judgment upon himself. Even though his heart had always been in line with the Father's love, He took the judgment for our hypocrisy and our false worship upon himself. He took the guilt for all the ways that we've mistreated others. He experienced in his own body God's anger against murder and adultery and lying. The Son of God, who had always known his Father's loving presence, cried out to him in darkness. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is for hypocrites. When you believe this message, you begin to change from the inside out. When you trust in Christ, it means that you stop trusting in other things for your salvation. You let go of the deceptive messages that tell you you have to look a certain way or achieve a certain thing to be acceptable to others. God declares you acceptable. When you believe this, it means you can stop pretending that you're anything but what you are. 
You can take off your mask. You can admit your weaknesses. And you can love others in a spirit of humility because you recognize that everything that you have is a gift. In other words, you you begin to change from the heart because you see that God has given you more than just your life. He's given you himself. This experience is what happened to John Wesley, uh, the 18th century pastor and the founder of uh, the Methodist movement. Before his conversion, Wesley was a deeply religious person. He was the son of a pastor. He was a pastor himself. He was orthodox in his beliefs. He was moral. He did lots of good works. He did ministry in prisons and in sweatshops and slums. He gave food and clothing and education to slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath, just to be safe. He sailed from England to the American colonies as a missionary. He studied his Bible. He prayed, he fasted, he gave regularly. Yet the whole time, it was about his own religious efforts. He was trusting in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done on his behalf. Later, he came to trust in Christ alone, and he realized in a profound new way that he was forgiven, that he was a son of God by grace. Looking back on all his religious activity before his conversion, he said, I had, even then, the faith of a servant, no, not that of a son. This is the gospel, friends. Jesus became a servant for us so that we might become sons and daughters of God. He comes to save those who trust in him alone, not those who trust in their virtue or their intelligence or their good deeds. He saves those who know that they have nothing but their their need for grace. And he's delighted to give it. If you doubt that his love is real, if you're not sure that you can really take off your mask in in his presence, let me invite you to, to look to Christ this morning. See his suffering love for you. Know that he has withheld nothing from you. He desires only for you to be in his presence. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Would you pray with me? Father, even though the abundance of your grace is displayed for us on the cross, uh, we confess that so often uh, we reject that grace to pretend and to perform before others in in so many ways. Uh, We admit our folly this morning, and we ask you to give us a, a renewed confidence in your love and in the sufficiency of Christ for us. And as we know your love more and more, may we love others as you have loved us generously and and sacrificially. We know that in ourselves this is impossible, but all things are possible through your Spirit and through your power. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. We we want you. We, We delight in you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.